Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Larry Wilcox. If this television theme song means something to you, then Larry Wilcox will really mean something to you. You are correct. The iconic theme song to Chips, a 139-episode crime drama series that originally aired on NBC for six seasons, from 1977 to 1983. It followed the lives of two motorcycle officers of the CHP, or California Highway Patrol. There was the macho, rambunctious, more trouble-prone officer Francis Llewellyn Poncherello, played by Eric Estrada, and his straight-laced, more level-headed partner, Officer Jonathan Andrew Baker, played by my guest today, Larry Wilcox. From freeway pileups to high-speed chases to interrogations and even to hostage situations, the show brimmed with dramatic flair in a time when there was no internet, no streaming, no satellite, no cable TV. People, there were only three major channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Thus, when John and Ponch rode onto our screens on NBC and across TVs in over 100 countries, there were literally tens of millions of us watching. Does Larry still get called John or Officer Baker more than 40 years later? We will find that out, plus what Mr. Wilcox is up to today. Welcome, Larry, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Thank you, Andrew. I'm in Southern California enjoying the heat, and I'm doing well. That is good to hear. Let's start with current day. What is Larry Wilcox up to in 2023? Combination of things. Uh, One is I'm vice president and a principal owner in a company called UVC Science, technology company that uh, has multiple patents and is capable of uh, killing, as we say, but really sanitizing any uh, virus or pathogen. And uh, through this ultraviolet light where we're about 2,000% stronger than any competitor in the world today. So um, we're real excited about that. We have a lot of pre-orders and uh, We'll deliver our first product probably in October to medical and surgical centers and uh, first responders and anybody that has HVAC uh, heating and air conditioning systems that want to put that in their system so that all the air is sanitized before it enters or exits the room. So that's one. Then uh, I'm supposedly tomorrow closing on a large funding deal, so we'll see if that's a reality tomorrow. And that funding will be utilized for mergers and acquisitions. Um, We'll build a very high-tech digital studio and um, do some films. And uh, but the majority of investments will be assets that have a true net profit definition, unlike films sometimes. Well, that answer is maybe not what people expected. There's there's no golf or beaches for Larry Wilcox. No. Well, I enjoy being a grandfather, by the way, to my two grandsons, and and uh, I have five children. They're growing and healthy, and uh, so you know, from that standpoint, I'm I'm good. My wife and I have been married about I don't know 36 years, and we have a great relationship. And uh, 
you know, I've probably cut back on racing cars and racing airplanes and that kind of crazy stuff. But other than that, I'm having a great time. It sounds great and obviously very busy. I want to go all the way back at the Larry Wilcox story. Born in San Diego, but raised in the small town of Rollins, Wyoming. Why in your youth did you have a 3.30 a.m. wake-up call? Oh, uh, because we were uh, working on ranches and... Uh, we would sleep out in teepees like uh, you see on TV back in the Native American days, right? And uh, then they'd wake us up before the sun came up, and we would get dressed under uh, some candle or something and then uh, get on horseback and ride to the corrals and brand and dock and cut and vaccinate the livestock. Those were long days, that's for sure. <laughs> well, from the ranch to Hollywood, that's quite a journey. Now, episodes of Chips occasionally mentioned your character John's service in Vietnam, and this was one of the earliest and more positive portrayals of a Vietnam veteran on television. You, Larry, were in fact a Marine, having served for 13 months in Vietnam on the DMZ during the Tet Offensive. Was this the scariest time of your life, and how do you look back on your service today? Yeah, it was pretty scary. Uh, during war, when you're most scared and uh, most vulnerable, um, you know, a combination of things occur. You One, you learn denial uh, very well, and through denial, you know, you takes years to figure out how long you've denied those issues, you know, those pains, those emotions. And uh, and then the second thing is, is that you come to really respect loyalty uh, under the worst conditions. So, you know, my experiences in Vietnam since I'm here as a former Marine, um, you know, I'm proud to have been in the Marine Corps and uh, one of the best outfits, in my opinion, in the world. You know, we trained hard and it was a, a life of meritocracy and you had to perform. And if you didn't perform, you were kicked out or abused in some way until you did perform, you know. So uh, it was a, it was actually a good experience. And even Vietnam... I mean, parts of it were a good experience. Vietnam was a really pretty country. We were up on the DMZ, so there a lot of mountainous country. And with the Montyard people were kind of like cavemen with a leaf on, and that's about it. And, uh, and then the North Vietnamese were, you know, maybe one mile from us. So right across the DMZ at Con Tien. You know, met a lot of really interesting characters, some really great leaders, men that put it all on the line. And uh, overall, you know, I think it was a pretty good, pretty good experience for me. There, there were, there are things that uh, were not good. And uh, anytime you're in war uh, and you see that kind of turmoil and that kind of tragedy and damage and blood and noise and explosions and napalm and, you know, cluster bombs and all those things that we would see daily or at least weekly, not always daily, by the way. It, it has a, an effect, that's for sure. Uh, and I would simply say I learned humility and gratitude. Well, gratitude's a huge word. You certainly must have been appreciative when you came back to America. And in 1970, you returned to Southern California and went to college. You were studying both dentistry and drama. Clearly, you were a very practical young man. <laughs> I think I was still expressing expressing economic fears is 
what I was. I was trying to figure out, well, drama is really fun and caresses a young man's identity crises. And so, uh, you know, I can wallow in that misery for a while and really enjoy it. But I don't know if I'll make any money, so I better study dentistry or medicine. But, you know, you like everything in life, life, if your parents or your peers don't advise you that, hey, you're, you're on the wrong path, dude, you don't have any talent here, whether it's basketball, singing, acting, um, you know, whatever. Well, in dentistry, you have to have manual dexterity, meaning that you're capable of carving and working with your hands. And, and f- for some reason, my neurons, you know, never s- had a synapse when it came to manual dexterity. So luckily, I didn't become a dentist because you would all be suing me. Well, you found the right path for you, and your first break came in 1971 when you were cast as Dale Mitchell, co-starring with the most famous collie in the world, Lassie. What's it like trying to film a TV show with a dog? You know, I I always joke uh, that I was housebroken and Lassie wasn't, but um, other than that, Lassie was the star, and I just kind of hung around. You know, I was, uh, it was an interesting, that was my first television series and really my first major break in the television world I read with 300 actors to co-star with Lassie and I think you know in retrospect I had trained as an actor and studied uh, for multiple years but you know I wasn't Peter O'Toole or some great Marlon Brando by any means but I was evolving but I think that my boy next door charm kind of got me the role and my etiquette I was always really polite and so I got the role and um, I did all my stunts made a whopping $450 a week I thought that I had died and gone to heaven at that time up to 1970 I think it was you know we traveled around in a Learjet and we just swam in the rapids and rivers and jumped off rafts and dr- jumped off trains and fell off horses and had a great time, you know. So as a boy from Wyoming, I just rediscovered my Huck Finn childhood, if you will, and uh, had a great time and got paid for it. That's the best. Now, when chips came around, Larry, they offered you the role of Patrolman John Baker. You initially turned them down. I had done a pilot for a television series for Rick Rosner, who was the producer of a pilot called Arrow Bureau. He was also uh, subsequently the producer of Chips, uh, original producer. And so he had seen me in a movie I had done with Farrah Fawcett, and where she was my girlfriend in uh, the Great American Beauty Contest. And then he saw me, and he cast me in Arrow Bureau, and Dan... Uh, Don Meredith was my co-star, or I was his co-star, and um, we had a great time doing that, and it didn't sell, and then he came uh, the next year and asked me to star in the television series called Chips, and I would help pick the other actor, and I said, no, no, I don't, you know, I'm an actor now, I'm really studied, and I'm really into creating characters, and I like to go off on tangents and and add layers to the character in the background and the wardrobe and subtly paint and all this indulgent rhetoric that I was had memorized, right? <laughs> and anyway, like all good prostitutes, uh, he offered me more and more and more money. So finally, I took the money and did chips, you know. Well, a somewhat interesting side note for the audience, that initially the producers were casting your partner, Ponch, 
to be of Italian descent, a.k.a. Poncharelli. But when Eric Estrada auditioned, he did such a great job that they changed their minds and Poncharelli became Poncharello. Now, at first, Larry, Chips was not a successful show. What changed that turned things around? Well, I think a combination of things, you know, placement is very important. So whether you're on which night and what hour, you know, in the beginning, we were kind of a kid's show, I would say, or a family family and kid's show. And we never pulled our guns or anything. But then they moved the show to different uh, days and different hours, and it became more and more successful. The Nielsen ratings, which is what they used to address the demographic and the, how many viewers, the viewership, uh, were watching the show. And it started to increase dramatically. And then all of a sudden, Eric and I would be household names because there were only three channels. There was ABC, CBS, and NBC. And so, you know, we were flavors of the month all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, it became pretty exciting. That So placement of the time schedule is one issue. The second issue was that a new producer was hired the second year, or maybe in the middle of the first year, Cy Shermack. And Cy did a wonderful job of making the show more mature, uh, meaning these weren't two Boy Scouts riding motorcycles. They were two cops, and they had to act like cops and not like little boys. I think the, his maturity in the plot bags, you know, we always talk about uh, different plots within the 60 Minutes show, what were there? Were there parallel themes, and and what were the appendages of each of those plots? He he really had that blueprint down, and was used to running a, a really clean, well-oiled machine. the The crew was excellent. You know, we would sh- we would shoot unheard of amount of setups a day, ten pages sometimes a day of, of filming, which is just an enormous amount of work interiors, exteriors, stunts, you name it, chase scenes, blowing up buildings and cars. So it became really a well-oiled machine, and we would uh, be picked up at 5.30 in the morning and sometimes get home at midnight, you know. You've kind of alluded to it, but it's it's really hard to appreciate today, more than 40 years later, the phenomena that was Chips, that you and Eric were literally celebrity superstars who were heartthrobs not just in North America but all over the world, Men wanted to be like John and Ponch. Women wanted to be with John and Ponch. How vividly do you remember the Chips craziness of the late 70s and early 80s? Well, it was pretty crazy. I, Based on the sensitivity today, I always walk on eggshells with that uh, question. But, but I'll just say that it was a wonderful time for a young man to enjoy that kind of stardom on a combination of levels. And, uh, you know, if if a male had any kind of needs identity-wise, luxury cars, airplanes, arm pieces, you know, whatever it was, those things were there and available. And, uh, you know, hopefully you were a gentleman and gracious about how you handled those situations. But I look back and, geez, you know, I got to start my production company and I got a new the Porsche 930 Turbo and a new Rolls-Royce and new jet skis and new motorcycles and a new home and a ranch. And I just really was grateful and humbled by all of that. When you think about it, it's a really lucky leg up that I got a lucky leg up in life. And some people go through their entire life 
and struggling with poverty, and it's really hard on the family, on the individual. And deep down in my heart, boy, I really always empathize with the people that just can't get a leg up. And if I could in any way help them, boy, I sure would. It's it's a tough life with poverty. Well, that level of attention and celebrity, I mean, it's just out of, it, out of my mind. It must have been out of your mind. And you talked about it a little now. When you look back, it must have seemed like, oh, this is kind of normal. But clearly you appreciated it and, and realized how uh, unique it was, that experience you had. Yeah, I think what's interesting about it, it is, was not normal. And so you had, to, you had to balance yourself on the tightrope of illusion versus reality. And sometimes illusion was that you were really something special and you were amazing and you were talented and all the and they brought your chair out for you to sit and when you walked they had an umbrella over you and what in the hell was this i thought wow this is like ridiculous indulgence but what happens with any human being is when you're immersed in that for a lengthy period of time no matter who you are you start getting tinges of that and and expect that in certain circumstances, and it plays out in your personality, uh, whether it was Eric or myself or a combination thereof. But uh, so it it wasn't normal, and balancing in that illusionary world was a was an interesting thing. Somebody asked me the other day if I had my you know with all the things I've done in my life, if I had it to do over, what would be one of the things that I would like to do? And I said I would like to focus on creating extremely surrogate relationships that were strategic so that whether it was helping with film or distribution or car manufacturing or car racing or public relations or marketing and advertising people there, you know, there are a lot of strategic relationships out there that would be extremely helpful for your black book instead of you know, did I get six or seven figures for that week's work? And I think, you know, all, not all, but many actors need this kind of mentoring. Um, I was a really a young boy, naive, even though I was, I grew up in Wyoming. What had I seen? Nothing. And I went to Vietnam and what did I learn? Really nothing, just pain and tragedy and discipline, maybe, and loyalty, but still was extremely naive. And when I started acting, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I became very focused and studied, 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 but still had no worldly life and was so myopic and yet started thinking I had power and power with myopia is a bad mix. So somehow, some way I was able to continue to succeed. But, you know, I bumped some people around, you know, as I moved through that vector and I wasn't sure what was the correct azimuth for that vector at times in my life? Well, it was certainly not normal life. And uh, one example of that is you, in fact, met two presidents, Ronald Reagan and George Bush the senior. Larry, what do you recall about those interactions? I've always tried to not be too impressed with uh, leaders, if you will. But uh, Ronald Reagan was a great guy uh, in meeting, very charming, charismatic. His wife, Nancy, was saying very nice when I met her. And 
and President Reagan, and then we met in the Oval Office and discussed uh, POWMIAs in Vietnam and on behalf of the American Legion and and fellow Marines and other uh, military uh, groups. And it was, you know, it was kind of cool to be in the Oval Office. And I found myself even looking around the White House. Here's a kid from Wyoming in the White House looking at all these presidential pictures and famous artists and architecture and stuff I'd never been exposed to in my life. And I was like, wow, how did I get here, right? And uh, so it it was really, really a, a wonderful experience. And then later, I was a keynote speaker for veterans in Washington, D.C. Actually, I think this one was in Indianapolis where I spoke for the veterans and uh, I got to uh, some medals I hadn't received while I was in Vietnam. President Bush pinned my medals on me, and and so I finally got the medals. And I was, you know, that was pretty cool to have the president pin a medal on you, you little Marine. I was just a sergeant, you know. It wasn't like I was General Wilcox by any means. And then later, I got to also meet the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, the, he was the head of the Marine Corps, and, and uh, his offices were there. And so I went to D.C. and met with him, and he asked me would I like to, you know, come back in as a lieutenant, an officer in the Marine Corps. And I said, uh, well, what would, it, would that entail? And he says, well, you know, you probably wouldn't do a recon survey and, and FO and fire direction control like you did in Vietnam, you would probably be public relations. And I said, and then what happens in time of war? And he said, well, that means you go to war. And so I said, no, no, I don't think I want to do that. But I'll tell you what, I'll quit my television series, which is very lucrative, and my production company immediately if I can become a fighter jet pilot and go to aviation school. And uh, we had a long discussion about that, but that uh, that wasn't going to work out. So we shook hands, and I went on my merry way back to Hollywood. <laughs> Always safer there. You could have yeah. been Top Gun, Larry. You could have been Top Gun. Yeah. <laughs> now, the on-screen chemistry between John and Punch is absolutely one of the hallmarks of the show. However, this may or may not have been the case in real life. Now, Larry, I am not a journalist. I'm not digging for dirt. You are my guest. But I do <laughs> have to ask. How did you get along with Eric Estrada during the days of Chips, and what is your relationship like today? Well, it's not unlike two little boys when they first learn how to play marbles. If you learn, if you've ever played marbles, you always want a few steelies so somebody can't steal your marbles, and then you give up your cat eyes. Or anyway, that's what we used to do when we played marbles. So some of your listeners are. Definitely probably too young to know what marbles even are. But anyway, you know, when we initially started it, I think it was uh, it, it, it was an interesting emotional ride. First, you had two young men. One, I, I kind of considered myself as a studied actor at that time, but here I was saying 10-4 every fifth page, so it didn't really require Peter O'Toole, you know, so get over yourself, Larry. And uh, and then you had Eric, who was kind of a, the Latin handsome guy that all the girls wanted to marry or go to bed with, right? And Eric is bigger than life, and, uh, you know, he's pretty much, he's a lot like the character Ponch, by the way. 
So me being the straight man, me being from Wyoming where you just don't show off or you get in a fist fight and get your you-know-what handed to you, so you just show-offs aren't accepted, right? But from the street in New York, Puerto Rican, you know, it was part of his his, uh, act, if you will, and his person. And uh, so at that time, you know, I always say lens is so important, how you look at things. And my lens was, you know, this guy's a show-off, and, and I'm really getting tired of him always bragging and always one-upping everybody and every picture standing in front of me instead of standing next to me and on and on and on. Well, if you really look at that lens, it showed an insecurity and a vulnerability and a negativity of Larry Wilcox also. And uh, as I grew older and more mature, I realized that, you know, that identity crisis as a young man fighting for your identity, swimming upstream and, you know, getting bumped out of the way from people that were more powerful at different times, you know, could be painful and could be injurious and could be career ending. So, you know, you become dog eat dog. And uh, so... The relationship, to answer your question, and I don't have any problem answering any of those things, but in the in the beginning, it was okay. After we started getting a little more famous, it got kind of ugly. And um, Eric and I didn't really get along, two jealous boys. You know, he did a lot of things that I think were in poor taste, and I did a lot of things that were in poor taste. So I don't blame him. Um, and we evolved, and then eventually, you know, Eric had a motorcycle accident where I went out and, uh, you know, didn't have to do CPR, but I was really well-trained, having been around death a lot in Vietnam, and so I was kind of like the first responder taking care of him. I could see he was dying. Um, he was lungs were filling up with fluid. His eyes were going back in his head. He was losing focus, and and I was yelling at him, that's grabbing his hand and hold, holding on to him to try to make him focus. And they flew him in a helicopter to the hospital. I went in the ambulance there. And I, he went in the ambulance, actually. And then the helicopter came later, I think, to take him to UCLA. And, um, and the priest came and gave him last rites and, uh, through this motorcycle accident. And, you know, so you feel like, well, I really gave to this guy all my heart and my soul, even though there were times I was upset with him, maybe even jealous at some point in time of him, right? And so later he went to NBC and said that he would like to change the cast and the actors. And they said, well, you can't do that. Well, he owned a percentage of the show because he sued MGM over that motorcycle accident that I just explained to you that he went to the hospital, a really tragic, a miracle that he lived, by the way. So I got uh, relieved, uh, fired, gone. And I, I said, why? why? How would they fire? I didn't know what happened, right? Years later, I found out from Cy Shermack that it was as a result of Eric. So most people would say, wow, how, how could you ever like a guy that got you fired, right? And ended your career. That thing could have gone another 10 years or so. You know, who knows how long it could have gone or wouldn't it have But for about five or 10 years after that, we never spoke, never saw each other. And we, I, we did chips reunions and uh, we, he would never come. And, 
you know, everyone said, ah, it's his problem, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why he's doing this. Well, I understand now why, right? And so over time, uh, we got back together and I made a decision in my mind. I said, you know, Larry, you can be angry and continue to be vengeful and ruin this for the rest of your life. Or you, you can do what you should have done when you were on chips with Eric. And that is you should have loved on him. And you should have given him, you should have been vulnerable and let him either lead or not lead. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You should have been a team player instead of an individual player. And uh, so I, I thought about that and I thought, you know, that's exactly right. My wife's an Olympic track and field athlete. She's a coach, and I watch her coach all the time and have to deal with lots of egos on individual events, especially in sprints. And I thought, yeah, this is what I should be doing, team. And as a result, we became good friends. And and I think his trust in me took time, you know, and vice versa. Although I was at the point I didn't have to work on my trust anymore. I was just going to love on him, you know, and enjoy the lens change. I enjoyed his personality from New York, you know, his streetwise kind of chippy attitude. And it was actually cute and entertaining and lovable. And I thought, you know what, this guy, this guy is a wonderful guy and a great entertainer. And so I got to watch him. And every time we do these autograph sessions together, you know, I just, I love it because if he wasn't there, it'd be boring. When he's there, I got to get entertained by all his shenanigans, right? The shenanigans I used to be upset about are the shenanigans I love now. So he's a he's a great guy, and he has a great family, and he works really, really hard. He's a hard worker, and he's a good human being, and God loves him. What a great point that it's a lens you look through, because I have to tell you, you've just made everyone so happy. I think every listener wants to fantasize that John and Potch are still hanging around just like on TV. And if I'm, I'm reading it right, Larry, today you are back in contact. You're your friends. You get along. And I understand you do still make uh, appearances together. Yes, we do about one to two, sometimes three a month in various high-density cities. Like we'll do uh, the chiller in New York, New Jersey area. Uh, we're getting ready to do Palm Beach. We're doing Toronto, uh, Hamilton, uh, I think we're doing soon. And, uh, so we, we have a great time. Every time we see each other, we hug and we're partners for life, you know, so onward and upward. Well, that is great to hear. That's excellent. Wow. I'm not exactly sure why I was so invested in this, but I assume like me, you are relieved to hear that Larry and Eric are indeed friends that do enjoy being together in real life. I have to say Larry has such a great attitude. He's a real gentleman. What a great explanation about how changing his attitude changed his happiness. I really hope that you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview. And if so, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got comedian Paul Reiser, Quiet Riot's Rudy Sarzo, crooner Matt Dusk, and even Bizarre's John Biner how they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Larry Wilcox. I want to go kind of behind the scenes, into the weeds of chips. You know, listeners don't really see how this is all put together. 
Chips was all about cops and criminals zooming at high speeds along the freeways of the Los Angeles area. How'd you actually accomplish filming on actual LA freeways? Yeah, it's something that I it would be almost impossible today. But at that particular time, just I suppose coincidental, um, the 210 freeway and the 118 freeway were being built and had not been completed. That was out by Pasadena, California, the famous Rose Bowl area, and uh, and from there down into the San Fernando Valley. So we were the only ones on the freeway. So we we would hire like 50 extras with their cars, and they would be the drivers and and uh, act like there's traffic, and then we would you know simulate or do simulations of uh, of the stunt before it happened and. Eric and I would be riding the motorcycles in and out of traffic, and they'd have to beware that we're coming and not to be swerving and be idiots, right? And and vice versa. We had to do the same. And so, you know, we'd practice, rehearse, and then blow up a car, wreck a car, or have ramps behind a car, and they'd hit the ramps and get airborne, and it looked like a really big accident. <laughs> Should have been just a fender better, but the, our cars were up in the air and so on. So, that unfinished freeway was a mecca for us. We would film exteriors out there two, three days a week in that hot sun, in that hot uniform, which just that, that pavement would just, or that concrete would just reflect all that heat. So, you know, it was 100 degrees, and in your uniform and the boots would be like 115. But uh, it, was, it was fun. We had good times. Okay, Larry, what was the visual cue that a keen viewer would look for to realize that you were actually on an unfinished freeway? What they would do is look at the other freeway. So if you were on the freeway, you'd see all of our cars coming, let's say, eastbound, and you look at across the medium strip at the westbound, there's not one car on it. And to this day, I don't know why they did that. Why didn't they have, I guess it was budget, but... uh, you know, 50 more extras or something driving the opposite way. It always drives me nuts when I see that. That's one. And then you didn't ask this, but in a way, what was another hint that was a little fakey was that, you know, we did, we went through extensive motorcycle training with the California Highway Patrol. We laid down the bikes, we wrecked them. We did high-speed braking where the tail end comes around. You name it, right? We did figure eights in a 10 by 10 squares, so we got really good at balance, at clutch, and braking. But um, on the close-ups, they would have us on a trailer, and they did us on a trailer to keep focus of two actors and also not to hear the engines and the noise so they could record the sound. But when you see us both bouncing and we're higher than the car beneath us on the freeway, it's a, a little dorky, to say the least. Now, what I understand is that prior to being cast, Eric did not have previous experience of motorcycles, so he had to take an intensive eight-week course learning how to ride, and in fact, depending on what website you believe, it either took him three attempts to pass and get his motorcycle license, or he never actually had his motorcycle license while filming chips. Can you confirm or deny any of those? Well, I don't know how many times it took him, but neither one of us had a motorcycle license. So um, all through chips, and I didn't think anything about it because all my life I'd ridden motorcycles, and I figured, you know, what do I need a motorcycle license for? No one has them in Wyoming. You just ride them, right? But anyway, um, 
I heard him say something, and I had announced previously that I didn't have a motorcycle license, and one day I was supposed to do a parade and ride a motorcycle recently, maybe 10 years ago means recently. And my wife says, are you going to ride in the parade? And how are you going to get to the parade? you got to go down the freeway and all the way down to Venice, Santa Monica, and then over to the beach. And I said, I'll just ride the motorcycle. So you don't have a driver's motorcycle license. Oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, this time I could get in trouble, right? And what helmet are you going to wear? I said, I'm going to, the only helmet I have is a chips helmet. And she's, oh my gosh, that's going to be so dorky. You're riding down the freeway with a chips helmet. You're going to get in trouble for impersonating an officer. So to make a long story short, I went and got a license. And Eric, I I found out later, same thing. He got it later. Now, I don't know how long it took him, if it took him three times or one time, but, but he can ride a motorcycle well. So it's. If someone says he can, no, he can ride him really well. Well, I think it would be quite a sight today to see you with your uh, chips helmet on a motorcycle on the freeway. <laughs> it's interesting. Another challenge to squeeze real life into a TV show is that real chip officers typically rode solo on their own. But of course, you guys were John and Ponch together on motorcycles whizzing down the freeway. Uh, do you remember how the show created a backstory to get around this? No, I think they just, you know, like a lot of things they do in film business is they compromise to enhance their goal or their plot. This was a buddy movie about two buddies of opposite background and character. And so, you know, they had to have them together. The problem with the show was they were, they were worried, how are we going to tell John from Ponch? I mean, if we ch- chase scene, uh, it's a motorcycle with a guy with a helmet on. You don't know who he is. So I had tan gloves. He had black gloves. And they did that on purpose, right? I had the billy club stick on my side, which I hated. And he didn't have one, right? So uh, he had the beautiful teeth. And so that his smile was miraculous. That helped a little bit, right? Absolutely. So uh, other than that, that was what they did to try to to compromise, get the plot with two buddies. You know, motorcycles in general, when you go to motorcycle training, they like you to ride in tandem, like one behind the other a little bit, offset, not ride together like that. But it was cool. And, uh, you know, every city we go to today, a bunch of cops come up and say they became cops because of John and Ponch. And by the way, once in a while we ride together, and I hate to tell you, but we turn on the theme music still, and these are 30- and 40-year-old guys, right? Saying, and we have a great time remembering those childhood memories with our dad or grandpa. That's fabulous to hear, and I want to ask you, since the, the cops love you, have you ever got a speeding ticket or anything, and then uh, when they pull up to the window, you remind them who you were on TV? Does that get you out of the ticket? Or <laughs> Well, I, I've, I learned don't ever remind them. Because that's really pompous and really rude, right? And it's like, do you know who I am? That'd be so... I mean, some actors do that, and they're idiots. And they've got... They're lost in their own media and marketing, right? So they think they're stars. And uh, in other words, you realize how much power I have, right? So stupid. But in those days, everyone... All the cops knew me, so it was never an issue. The issue was, be very polite, Larry... Don't ask for a favor because you're going to put them in a bad situation, right? And don't offer them any gifts or anything. Just be polite, right? And usually I, they would say, well, Larry, come on now, slow down. Or in my Porsche, they used to always tell me, you can't have those darkened windows on the side of the driver. You know, you have to get those replaced. They 
one cop stopped me three times said, okay, Larry, this is the third time. Next time I'm writing you up, so it's up to you, you know. And uh, But no, to answer your question, I never got a ticket. And I'll tell you one real quick story. I'll try to be succinct. One time I got stopped in Westlake, California by a really young cop. I think he was a sheriff, but he might have been a CHP. He stopped me in my Porsche, right? And I had made a U-turn in the middle of the street. And he said, oh, uh, you know, you just made a U-turn in the middle of the street. And I, oh, you're John Baker. My goodness, I can't believe I'm, re- I'm meeting John Baker in person. I said, yeah. I said, but, you know, and I made up these numbers. I just started being an improv. I said, well, you know, according to Statute 2823, you can make it as long as you see 50 yards one way and 50 yards the other way. I can make it a U-turn in the middle of the and he was all flabbergasted with my rhetoric, right? He's, oh, oh, okay, well, geez, it's really nice to meet you, John Baker, and uh, I'll see you later. And I didn't even get a ticket that time, right? So, uh, no, I never have received a ticket. But now, at my age, most of the cops are young guys that don't even know who in the hell Larry Wilcox or Chips are, you know. So, so be it. That's why you got to carry that helmet around the back seat, with yeah, you, just in case. <laughs> Now, as viewers, we knew that showtime meant go time when John's radio would crackle, Seven Mary Three, Seven Mary Three. Is there any particular meaning behind your call name on the show? Yeah, mine was Seven Mary Three, and Eric Estrada's was Seven Mary Four. And uh, Seven, I, I, I don't know if I remember this exactly, so I'm going to say I remember it, but for sake of honesty, I'm not 100% sure. Seven meant that you were from the Central Division, uh, which was that little downtown CHP office underneath 50 freeways up above us, just noisy as can be, and just cars going all different directions as you're looked up into this concrete jungle of automobiles and concrete. And uh, M meant motors, so Central Motors, and three meant the area that we were assigned to for duty that particular day or route. So uh, seven motors, central motors assignment. I want to say for the record, Larry Wilcox, you're as sharp as a knife. That's exactly what it stood for. Seven stood for central division, Merriman Motors versus cars, and three was the freeway area that you were patrolling. Yeah, I've gotten that call. That call I'm not going to mean for the rest of your life. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have that on my license plate on one of my vehicles, 7M3. And most people don't know, but the cops know, you know. <laughs> I have to ask, how many times did the police officers on ships draw their guns during the show's 139 episodes? You've alluded to already it was quite low. Let's see if you can get the number. One. Well, they say just three times, but I want well, to talk to you about why. Because John and Ponch used their charm to maintain law and order and keep the peace rather than the guns. But uh, there's a little more, obviously, to that. Why was it important that you didn't draw your guns often? I think the producers and the networks were perpetuating their politics, uh, meaning their point of view. And um, they weren't really in favor of gun rights. And so they didn't want to have a public relations tool for gun rights, Second Amendment and so on. And so they preferred not to have any violence with guns or guns drawn to perpetuate that or model that for anyone in the world. So, you know, it seemed like their vision uh, was a good vision in general, 
and probably in those days in the 70s and 80s, it was a good image to sit out there. And number two is the police officers that we represented, Eric and myself, were guys that anybody felt like they could come up and talk to. And, you know, they were just messengers, if you will. If you broke the law, you get a ticket and now you're going to have to go to court and figure out a solution, right? And there, there's a whole spectrum of laws within that those people doing it, like everything from running a red light to killing someone or drugs or sabotage or whatever, right? And uh, I think that they they wanted us to be Boy Scout kind of images, if you will, not not as boys, as I said in the beginning, but as good principled people uh, that were just like you and I that just happened to have a job called California Highway Patrol. Today, the cops are portrayed as very edgy, sometimes bipolar, meaning in terms of the law, uh, they break the law themselves and then they don't. And so it was it was a much different time. But to answer your question, I think they did it mostly for politics and to keep the image image smooth, clean and a nice image for children and families. It was it was a family friendly show, and and I think you're you're right. The contrast to today is incredible. Because every five seconds is some kind of weapon. Larry, I want to share this description of the chips format with you. I think you're going to get a kick out of this. The typical chips episode featured a denouement or final scene of John and Ponch participating in a new activity, such as jet skiing or skydiving, designed to showcase the pair's glamorous Southern California lifestyle. Often, Ponch would attempt to impress a woman that he had met during the episode with his athletic prowess or disco dancing, only to fail and provide John and the others with many laughs. As the preliminary end credits would start, the image would freeze multiple times, showing John or Ponch or the other various characters laughing or otherwise enjoying the social scene. Larry, did you get to do the jet skiing or the skydiving or the disco dancing? Very seldom, first of all, but let me address your first question. I, You know, I didn't do the disco dancing, hey, Although I was there, I and they, how they wrote this sometimes I, I disagreed with. I, I just felt like, you know, you wanted this to be mature. And now you have Ponch singing on stage. Uh, forgot that song. It's haunted me for a long time. Um, celebration, of course. And he's up there singing Celebration, and he's in his disco outfit. And, you know, he's John Travolta the second, right? And and I and they write this script where I'm supposed to be standing in the audience in awe of my brother Eric Estrada or Elvis Presley, right? And I just said, This is really stupid, man. I'm not no real guy would be doing that in awe like he's a fan, you know. I said, So I, I'm gonna do it tongue in cheek, like, you know, <laughs> this guy, he's crazy, but oh well, he enjoys it and you know, don't it's no big deal, but it's too bad he enjoys it in a way because he's going way out on the limb here. You know, be careful, Ponce. You're going to make it, you know what, of yourself. That's how I played it, right? Now, having said that, you know, he did a good job, by the way, and all the girls loved it. And we had to write, do the roller disco. And I, yes, I did the roller skates and he did them. And I was terrible on roller skates and didn't want to do them. And he's a good dancer, by the way, Eric. He was a good dancer in those days. So he, he liked doing all the dancing stuff. So I went to the producers and I said, you know, geez, you're writing this disco stuff. You're writing this, you're writing that for Eric. Well, you, you don't even need me here. I'm the guy that says, 
10-4 and let's pull up these people over and handcuff them. And I don't even really get to be the straight guy, let alone anything else. You're wasting your time with me and I'm wasting my time with you. So either I leave or we start figuring out a way to have John do something in life, you know. And so they would talk to me about Vietnam and how to incorporate that, which they never really did. And then they would talk about uh, my sports and what I played in basketball and football and how to incorporate that. And then they, they said, well, you were a cowboy, right? So, well, maybe we could do some rodeo stuff. You rodeo professionally. And I said, yeah, I rodeo, team rope, calf rope. So they wrote us uh, an episode where I, there was a rodeo scene. And Eric was kind of the bump on the log. He came out to see John Rope. And I thought about it while we were filming. I said, wow, the talk about a 180. You know, here here Eric is in his Gucci clothes on the corrals at the rodeo ground looking at the cowboys all dusty and dirty rodeoing, you know. So, you know, they to answer your question, they did one or two, uh, a very few amount of shows about John and from that standpoint, it was really frustrating, frustrating to go and say nothing for 20 pages sometimes, you know. The uh, the mix of the kind of every episode had a police issue and kind of a, a personal or a lifestyle kind of part. So I think yeah. that was also interesting, the way they incorporated, you know, you had your career and you had your personal life as well. Yeah, sometimes, you know, there was always a police theme and a and a personal theme, as you mentioned. And sometimes they would try to, like, one time they wrote a square dancing show for me, right? I said, I'm not doing it. They said, what do you mean? I said, that's as dorky. You're making this character the dorkiest guy in the world. Why are you making him so dorky? And they said, oh, what do you mean? It's Western. It'll be cute. I said, no, it isn't. It's really bad marketing. You're going to have me square dancing and Ponch doing the disco? I mean, talk about apples and oranges, right? So I, I got sick when they did that episode, and Eric had to do it. So Eric and Robert Pine and all those guys, they did the square dancing. But the personal things was he lived in his motorhome, and I lived in an apartment. And, you know, he was messy, messy bachelor eating sweets all the time and cream-filled donuts and whatever, right? And uh, I was, uh, you know— the mature, responsible training officer who lived in the apartment. So, you know, they did a survey once. They said, what what did the people like? And they found that, you know, most of the girls wanted to be Eric's girlfriend in terms of demographic and go to bed with Eric in some cases. Right. And most of the girls that were my fans wanted to get married to Larry or John Baker. So that was kind of... Uh, that, to me, kind of d- differentiated the characters. You were certainly different. Absolutely. Yes. Now, you had a very interesting co-star, Larry. In the fifth season, Eric Estrada went on strike over a dispute over syndication profits, and as a result, he did not appear in seven episodes and was replaced by Officer Steve McLeish, played by, yes, Bruce Jenner, who set world and Olympic records in winning gold at the 1976 Montreal Olympics and is now, of course, known as Caitlyn Jenner, Casting Bruce at the time would have been a really big deal. He was like the original Kardashian with athletic talent. What are your memories of Bruce Jenner's acting chops? Well, he was, you know, he was pretty good. He, the roles that he had or the lines that he had to do in our show, you know, if you were halfway natural, you could get by with it. 
So he did, uh, you know, a journeyman's job of doing those roles. Uh, he didn't have to do any big emotional crying, dramatic scenes, you know, so the, it's hard to judge on wh what his acting chops were really like. He was a nice guy, always positive, very energetic. He was a guy's guy. You know, we had so much fun. We did a lot of things together. We raced cars. We raced go-karts. We played tennis. Um, he didn't rodeo, but, um, you know, he was an athlete, a great athlete, the world's best athlete. And um, everyone knew Bruce well. And, and when he would show up, you know, everyone was impressed that Bruce Jenner was there. Yeah, seven episodes, and then Eric uh, settled his uh, legal dispute with MGM and NBC, came back, and uh, they got rid of Bruce. Off he went to become who he is now. <laughs> well, and uh, another interesting castmate that you had at one time, I want to ask if you remember what actor, better known for being one of the kids in the Partridge family, guest starred in an episode of Chips. Oh, yeah, he was a great kid. Uh, what was his name, though? Yeah, Danny Bonaducci, yeah, Crazy Danny. So uh, he did one or two episodes, I think, in our... He was into the nunchucks and uh, that martial arts stuff and obviously a famous disc jockey later on. And then... Well, your your memory again sharp because Danny Bonaducci did play a car stripper who's brought to justice by you guys. And in fact, he was one of those only three times that guns were drawn. One of those times was on Danny Bonaducci. Oh, now, merchandising TV shows via toys was huge then, as it is now. There was a series of 8-inch action figures released by a company called Mego in the late 1970s. But due to poor quality of the materials used, many of them became discolored, turning green. Some started to decompose over the years. Therefore, those issues made anything remaining and intact. Action figures very valuable on the collector's market. Larry, I want to ask if you have any of the chips, action figures, or any of the collectibles or lunchboxes that were part of the merchandising of chips. I have some, you know, on my website at LarryWilcox.net. I have a store, and people can go in and buy stuff there. And I have a 7 Mary 3 hat, and sometimes I'll sell a chips helmet autographed by myself or myself and Eric. And I recently got one autographed by Randy Oaks, also the girl that was on or one of the girls that was on our show. Yeah, I have one of those little dolls, uh, Neanderthal men, I call them, with blonde hair. <laughs> and uh, doesn't look like anybody, but it's a monkey. I have a, a bobblehead up here sitting on my desk. It's kind of funny looking. So, yeah, and then when we go to sign autographs, you know, collectors come and, geez, they'll just lay down $700 and say, sign this, 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 and this. Only sign here, you know, and they... They have their certain places, kind of like sports, baseball cards, and all those kinds of things, you know. So uh, collectors, it, it always surprises me, all the stuff that they've collected, you know. I'm trying to clean out my garage, and they're still collecting, right? Well, make sure no one brings the dumpster up to your place, Larry. You probably That's got right. stuff of value down your influence on the culture of the day was also immense. We all know the YMCA song that is still sung at every wedding. Well, Victor Willis of the Village People claimed that Larry Wilcox and Eric Estrada directly influenced his band persona and costuming as the police officer. Said the Village People's Victor at the time, Thank you, Eric Estrada, for your dazzling smile. And thank you, Larry Wilcox, for looking so good in a uniform. Did you, did you know you would influence the Village People's cop? 
No, I didn't. That's new news to me. Thank you, Andrew, for sharing that. I know I found out maybe 10 years ago that there was an actual uh, metal band uh, that named themselves Seven Mary Three after my call letters also. So that was kind of cool, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I personally thought there was a connection with Miami Vice. So another excellent crime drama show, Miami Vice. I thought it took inspiration from Chips. I wasn't going to mention it, but White cop with a Hispanic partner, hothead officer paired with a cool cucumber partner, and of course, driving at ridiculous speeds in the sunshine stopping crime. But I decided to bring this up to you today because apparently you screen tested for the Sonny Crockett role that eventually went to Don Johnson. Is this true? Yes, that's true. I On my website at LarryWilcox.net is the video of me, my screen test, by the way. So they they greased my hair back and they wanted him to be kind of a badass and, you know, a little bit of a stubble and just intense guy. And so I, that's how I played him. And it was fun. You know, I, I, I went to do the reading and Michael Mann, the famous director was there and he had me read and changed my look and so on. And everyone says, wow, you got the role. And so the attorneys, the business affairs office at Universal Studios called my agent and said, man, you know, we just looked at the reading that you, your your client, Larry Wilcox, your, your actor, did for Miami Vice, and uh, he should have been a major movie star. This is, this is unbelievable. I mean, I'm just, we're just all sitting here, the attorneys, presidents, CEOs, blown away. Uh, at this reading, and said, so he called me. My agent told me that, and I was all giddy and excited. And and uh, then uh, they went and said, "Would you pick the other actor, Larry? Because you're going to play Sonny Crockett." I said, "Okay." And so for the next multiple months, I read with every actor it seemed like in Hollywood, and to find the right Hispanic or African American or Asian or whatever my partner, right. And uh, did fight scenes, and every one guy hit me in the eye. Actually, cut my eye way open, and and did all kinds of stuff. And then one day, I'm supposed to go to Brazil to do a personal appearance in Rio and and uh, São Paulo. And uh, they call, and 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 uh, the president of NBC calls and tells my agent, "I'm really, really sorry, David." But we've decided to go a different way because Don Johnson had read before me and they said, no, they weren't going to use Don Johnson. Then they read me after Don Johnson, then picked me, right? Then I became the guy. And now they decided to go, go back to Don Johnson and find someone that would team up with him. And so I didn't get the role. And, uh, the president of NBC wrote in his book that I was by far the best actor but sometimes the best actor doesn't get the role, you know. So um, anyway, onward and upward. It was a shoulda, coulda, woulda, but it was yeah. a good experience. And well, Don Johnson, I always say, did a great job and probably a good guy to cast, handsome guy. And he was much different character than the way I played it. But maybe one was different, not necessarily better. Well, that is quite a story. And I do think there's connections between the way that the, the Chips partnership and the Miami Vice between Crockett and Tubbs. This being the Toronto Legends podcast, I would appreciate any memories you have of Toronto or of Canada, either in your working career or as a visiting tourist. 
Well, I have uh, many good memories, one bad. Uh, the good are that, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time um, in Toronto. Uh, I went to old Montreal. I speak some, I studied French for a long time, but, and I'm pretty good at writing and reading it, but not so good in hearing it. And I can speak it, but when I have to listen back, my ear isn't tuned, right? And that's the problem with every language, unless you're immersed in it daily. So I would go to uh, Bois de Filion, is a little area up above old Montreal. And uh, there's some pubs up there. I, I did the Blue Nights. We rode our police bikes up there one time as a promotion. And and then uh, in old Tor old uh, Montreal, I, you know, I'd go walk around the art festival areas and stuff and have a great time and speak a little French. And one time I did a personal appearance there and all the French people came out and French-speaking people, Canadians, excuse me. They, when I spoke French, they went crazy, you know, because I spoke French. So that was kind of cool. And so those were good memories. And in Toronto was, uh, you know, I think Toronto's a, this was a long time ago when I was there for so much time producing. I stayed at the Four Seasons Hotel. So I always remember those wonderful truffles they had on your pillow. I wish they would have a bushel of them before I go to bed, right? And uh, it was a great hotel, great meals and uh, indulgent and fun and and then I stayed at the International Hotel, I think it was called, over by the baseball field, by the water, somewhere on the other side sometimes also. And then we'd go out in those little towns, and it was, a, you know, Canada's a photographer's mecca as far as I'm concerned, because there's a lot of really unique looks. And then I love the little area behind uh, the Four Seasons, which I forgot the name of that street with all the museums and stuff back there beautiful museums and all the I, I remember some some sculptors that had made some things that reminded me of my wife and I wish I would have bought them they were I mean they were maybe twenty five hundred three thousand dollars and probably thirty thousand now right really really well done art and artistry so I was always impressed with the art culture if you will the only bad situation I had it was really bad was that I had developed and raised capital and had optioned and owned the rights to the television series called the Ray Bradbury Theater. And Ray Bradbury is a famous science fiction writer. I had also bought the rights to the, the death of a playmate, the Dorothy Stratton story, which I did produce for uh, in my past also. But the Ray Bradbury Theater, you know, Ray Bradbury was a prolific writer with a lot of short stories that we could produce. So I went to HBO and they bought it. They said, we're going to do this with you, Larry. And yeah, this is when I was kind of a young producer, but, but I had made six deals in six weeks. So I was a hustler going bam, bam, bam. Right. And everyone said, you know, you should have been an agent instead of an actor. You just, you're a natural salesman. Right. So uh, I made all these deals, and I made this one, and then I made a deal with a Canadian company called Atlantis Films. Michael McMillan and Seton McLean were two young producers, Canadian. And I, I always felt this hostility between Americans and Canadians with them. Uh, I never felt it anywhere else, but people were always nice and polite and you know, Canadians are always really polite, I think, compared to Americans. 
But these guys, something was wrong. And anyway, we produced all these episodes in England and France and Canada, New Zealand, the United States, and some I directed and some the openings and closings I did. And anyway, oh, maybe five, seven, eight years ago, I'm reading in the newspaper where Michael McMillan sold his company, Atlantis Films, to a big investment firm in Wall Street for seven, eight hundred million dollars. And included in the library was the Ray Bradbury Theater, which I owned, right? What? I put the money together, the funding together, the rights together. And yes, eventually we let them have the copyright because they were going to distribute it. So I called him and asked him, yay, you know, what is this about you sold all your life? Oh yeah, we made this great deal. And Seton and I are retired. We're kind of gentlemen, wealthy men now, and we all we have a vineyard and, you know, all the stuff that wealthy guys put on their forehead. And not all, but some. And um, I said, well, what happened? Where's my payment for my ownership? You know, I owned it. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, what do you mean? I owned that show, and I made, I brought you guys into it, and HBO did, and you co-funded with Canadian Capital, and, but that doesn't mean that you don't pay me. And well, we only sold our percentage, he said. So you sold my wagon, but you said you only sold your wheel. But those people are showing my wagon everywhere and I'm getting nothing for it. Well, we didn't do anything wrong, Larry. We only sold my percentage. I said, yes, you did. By This is lying by omission. You you didn't tell me. You didn't call me. You didn't. Well, we didn't know where you were. I said, that's bullshit. You know exactly where I am. I'm easy to find, you know. So that was a bad experience. To this day, I've never, and they received lots of money. And and they could take all of their assets on their balance sheet and say, oh, we only charge a penny for this, but these we charge the big money. So you're going to, it's going to be an ugly legal thing. But, and I don't know what the statute of limitations are, but, you know, they'll die, maybe not hopefully with it on their conscience, because they did wrong. And um, it was too bad they didn't at least inform me as all the work that I did and brought that to them. So that was my bad Canadian deal. <laughs> I am unhappy to hear about that. And as you've acknowledged, uh, sometimes, when, certainly when it comes to accounting, a million-dollar profit can be made to look like a million-dollar loss. So Litigation yes. can sometimes be making you feel worse, but I am glad to hear that your Canadian experience is positive, vastly outweigh yeah. the negative ones. Yeah. I know how often you still get recognized today, and you're clearly doing a lot of shows and reunions, but I want to ask, how often do you get acknowledged on the street as John Baker versus Larry? Not very often to answer your question, but when it depends. If I'm alone, I'm anonymous. Most celebrities will tell you anonymity is a gift. It is truly wonderful. You know, you get to talk to people normal and they don't get all flustered. And you get to have intimate conversations about, you know, their tragedies or their inner workings of business and so on. And I really enjoy that uh, versus the celebrity conversations. But uh, having said that, obviously, when we go to Comic-Cons, their people are there to get our autographs. So... They, they they recognize it. But if I'm with Eric Estrada, it's night and day. He gets recognized like Elvis Presley. Like I tell him, 
Eric, I'm not going to go to dinner with you. He said, come on, let's go to dinner. I know, because you're like Elvis Presley. You're going to walk in and smile with big teeth, and oh, the people are going to not going to notice you immediately. And next thing you know, we're not going to get to eat, and you're going to have to sign autographs. So, no, I'm not going with you. So he's the catalyst, and he's more on TV uh, recently versus me. I'm more into technology and business, and if if everything works out tomorrow, that would be the best thing that ever happened to me. So God bless him. Excellent. Well, you've been great with your time, and I appreciate all your time. As we close up, I want to ask if you're still active on social media, and where can we best follow you and access your fan page? Yeah, I'm on all of them. I do Twitter. Um, I do my Facebook, Larry Wilcox 7M3, and I do um, all the other ones, basically. I don't do TikTok. Uh, I also do LinkedIn for business, but uh, almost anything, Instagram, I do that. And uh, so any and all of those I'm on, you know, I usually do a post or two a day. I try to post pictures on Facebook because people like to look at old pictures. And yeah, all the social media, I'm out there. And to visit your fan page, I believe it's LarryWilcox.net. Yes, LarryWilcox.net is my fan page. Excellent. Last but not least... In advance, happy birthday to you. When this airs, you will be a spry 76, and may I say, still looking very John Baker-like. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. August 8th, 8-8. Those are my lucky numbers on the craft table. Excellent. <laughs> Buy a lottery ticket for sure. Larry, I want to thank you for your time. It was great meeting and hearing all your stories. And clearly, we look forward to you coming up to the GTA Greater Toronto Area. It sounds like you'll be in Hamilton. And I want to wish you uh, continued success both with life and your entrepreneurial ventures. Thank you very much, and thank your wife for allowing your time to come and do this with me, and I apologize for being late. <laughs> you're good, you're good. It was great meeting you. All right, have a good one. And to the listeners, on behalf of Larry Wilcox, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Trial Legends Podcast. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world, and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.